Hey, this is Alanya. For the last two years, I've been learning about the complex history, the benefits, and the rituals of tea from the experts, Lake Missoula Tea Company. I have been fascinated with what I've learned along the way. Now I'd like to share some of these stories over a cup of tea with you. Hi, this is Jake Krylik with Lake Missoula Tea Company. And my wife and I, Heather, um, are the owners. And we've been in business since 2012. So now entering our seventh year. Today, we're going to talk about the history of tea, and that's a very tall order. So today, we're going to talk about the origins of tea, where and when it was discovered, and how it's evolved over human civilization, and bring us up into probably the point where tea becomes more of a thing in the West, you know, in Europe and in North America. The history of tea is a very long and interesting story. It dates back nearly 5,000 years um, to the beginnings of human civilization. And it's important, I think, for people because it's the second most popular beverage in the world after water. Tea quenches thirst, heals, and sustains us. So we really drink it for both pleasure and for health. And I think that's one of the reasons why it retains its popularity. It's because it's good for us, um, but we also like it. And we like drinking it with other people. Now there are many tea origin stories and legends attached to various individuals, ethnic tribes in Yunnan and other parts of South China. They have their own stories about where tea came from. Japanese claim that it originated in the northern Indian state of Assam from the Buddhist monk uh, Bodhidharma. But it's now well documented through a lot of historical uh, research that it dates back far before Christ to the time of Moses. And the most popular legend is that a uh, Chinese emperor named Shang Nong, uh, he was in power from 2737 uh, BC to 2697. So we're talking about this is all long before Christ. He was also known as the divine healer and the divine farmer. So aside from being an emperor, um, he was a scholar and an herbalist, um, which I think gives him a pretty unique perspective. But he was boiling a pot of water when some leaves blew into the pot. And he noticed that the color of the water changed after these leaves landed in the pot. He then went about tasting it and after he tasted the, tasted the result, he really liked the flavor and he also felt his body invigorated. So I think he undoubtedly helped spread the understanding of some of the properties of tea and ultimately he helped bring it into cultivation. This was long before it was cultivated. Back then they were probably eating it, um, chewing it, chewing the leaves, much like um, people in South America chew the cocoa leaves. And then obviously they would grind it into like a mortar um, and then they would boil it. Keep in mind that all tea comes from one plant called Camilla sinensis, which is an evergreen shrub and small tree. And uh, Camilla means evergreen and sinensis means from China. So that's the Latin kind of derivative. But Camilla sinensis, um, there are three species, um, Camilla sinensis sinensis. So that was the first tea that was discovered in China, um, in Yunnan. And it has a small leaf and grows as a small bush or a tree and it produces the most delicate tea. Um, in the wild, it can grow to heights of 20 meters, so up to 60 feet, and live for hundreds of years. 
Um, it is thought to be the most ancient variety that's been used for cultivation. Now, Camilla sinensis asamica was the wild tree tea tree that was discovered in India. And so the asamica variety is an even larger tree. It can get up to 30 meters in height, so almost 100 feet, but it has much larger leaves than the Camilla sinensis sinensis. And the tea is much stronger. It produces a really strong, earthy flavor. Um, and then there is also Camilla sinensis cambodiensis. So this was found in Southeast Asia, in Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. It's a medium-sized leaf. And what they have found is it's an excellent uh, capacity for hybridization. Um, it's not cultivated commercially on its own, but they have crossed it with some of these, the two other varieties um, to create what we say new varietals or new cultivars. So tea, natural varietals are tea that has evolved distinctly on its own according to its local environment. So according to the soils, according to sort of the local climate and weather, everything from topography, you know, uh, shade and aspect, all that plays a factor in the natural variations. So tea planting and tea production uh, really begins um, in Sichuan and in Yunnan. So in southwestern China, they actually start growing it agriculturally. And um, it will spread to other parts of China slowly. And as that happens, of course, you, you, be, you begin to see a lot more experimentation, new varieties. Um, but in the beginning, it's all green tea or the Puar dark tea. Um, so I'm going to kind of explain those differences. But initially, it's mostly green tea that is drank. And it's during the Tang Dynasty, so the Tang Dynasty of China, about 600 AD to 900 AD, um, this becomes the point where tea is inseparable for people. It becomes just a really strong cultural identifier in China. There's tea houses then, and people are drinking it on an everyday basis, obviously for medicinal purposes, but also for social and just for relaxation. This is also the period where Buddhist monks take it to Japan. And um, this is also the period where tea cakes, um, so the Puar tea cakes, really take off. And so the Puar is aged fermented tea. And the Chinese have been doing this for, as I said, a couple thousand years. Um, but it becomes a commodity at this point because it becomes a source of trade. And so we're talking here about the Tea Horse Road, which is a series of trails, of uh, trade, you know, trade trails, um, that led to Burma and led to Tibet and onto the Silk Road. And so this is really when the Chinese start to push tea beyond their borders. They're primarily trading initially with the Tibetans. The Tibetans have the horses from the steppes, the, the um, you know, kind of Mongolian and Himalayan steppes. Well, the Chinese have the Puar teas. And so that is the primary goods that are exchanged. Um, ultimately, other spices and other European goods will start coming back the other way. Um, but Puar tea is really one of the first products of free trade in the world, um, which I think makes you know tea unusual in that sense that it's one of the first products to be traded and commodified. What we're gonna taste first today um, is a Puar tea. It's one of our most popular and it's the sticky rice. This tea um, is a ripe premium Puar that's scented with a herb that smells and tastes like rice. So if you steep it at home, 
pretty soon your kitchen will start smelling like sticky rice. But as I said, it's something that um, many of our customers have really come to like. It's really, really good for your stomach. In China, they call it the slimming tea. So obviously referencing weight loss. It's also referred to as the hangover tea. Again, we find it to be really, really good because um, it kind of breaks down the fats and acids in your stomach and just makes you feel a lot better. You know, just aids digestion after meals. Um, so again, we recommend it for people that have stomach issues or yeah, who are looking to drop a few pounds. Um, it also contains less caffeine because of the fermentation process. The ripe pu'er will sit and ferment for six weeks. So you've got organisms inside of there, uh, you know, imagine a stack of tea four feet tall sitting there fermenting for six weeks. You've actually got organisms breaking stuff down inside there. Um, so that's what makes it probiotic. Now there's also raw pu'er, and that's also referred to as the green pu'er, only fermented for a couple days and it's much lighter so smoother, but still has that earthy kind of um, aroma and taste. The other interesting thing about the Puar is that much like fine wine, the older it gets, the better it gets. And if you travel to China and you go to some of these, you know, really high-end tea houses, you've got Puars back from the 1940s and 1950s that fetch thousands of dollars. Here at Lake Missoula Tea Company, we have about a dozen Puar teas. Uh, about eight or nine of them are in loose form, and then about three or four that we have in the, the cakes or the buttons. And the sticky rice is one of the ones that comes in the buttons. So it's an individual button. This is the most popular tea, um, so it's definitely one that we've gotten a lot of kind of pats on the back and just, you know, kudos. Um, and it's, again, something that most people aren't familiar with. Um, so, you know, helping to hopefully educate them about what Puar tea is and the fact that, you know, in China, this is really special. Okay, so we're going to shift gears a little bit. And, um, you know, in China, the traditional way of processing green tea is to immediately dry the leaves and then roast them using uh, kind of copper bowls or copper pans over a fire. Um, and once you've done that, that stops the oxidation of the leaf. So again, air and sunlight will no longer affect it in that way, but you've preserved all of the antioxidants, all of the enzymes inside that leaf. Um, and so that is why green tea is the most healthy for you, is because you've protected those kind of chemical compounds the catechins and the polyphenols that are good for you know your body and for your metabolism. Starting in the 1400s, this is when Japan actually got tea plants and started planting them in their own country. And so the Japanese, they pioneered a new form of processing green tea. And so instead of roasting it, they steamed it. So the Japanese basically would sweat the leaves using steam until they become pliable, easy enough to roll, then they dry it, and then they repeat the process several times. And so the Japanese, as I said, really kind of changed how green tea was processed. And so to this day, the Japanese greens, they all taste different than the Chinese greens or other greens that are processed in other countries. Um, and so because of the way that they process them, their green teas are more sensitive. 
So if you drink the sencha or the giyakura, you literally can only steep those for a minute or two before they'll start to turn bitter. What we say astringent. So you have to just be really careful with some of those Japanese greens. The Chinese greens um, usually steep them at three minutes, but that's because they roasted it. We're gonna taste here the sakura cherry here in a second, but the I think the most important thing um, to keep in mind is, is that once Japan starts to grow tea, obviously there are Europeans that will start to obviously buy tea from Japan as well. And that occurs all the way up until when Japan closes its ports to all Westerners. And that happens in the 1800s, um, that Japan basically shuts its markets off. Um, China will follow suit after the Second Opium War. The British, the Dutch, um, the Portuguese, they're all buying tea because by the 1600s, 1700s, tea is becoming a major commodity. Most green teas are steeped at 170 degrees Fahrenheit for three minutes. Um, as I said, the Japanese greens might be steeped less than that. Lots of people have problems brewing green tea because they brew it too long or too hot. So if you have it home and you don't have like a digital you know, kettle where you can set the temperature, just let the kettle sit after it boils for about three or four minutes and that will bring it down to that 160, 170 temperature and you will immediately notice the difference in the flavor. Like our Nepali green, so that's another really nice green we have. That would be another one that's pretty sensitive. Now our heritage green, which is Chinese and it comes from the ancient tea trees, that's probably the green that we sell the most of. It's more forgiving, but that's also because it comes from these ancient tea leaves, um, which are hardier and I just think um, you know, just have a little bit more resistance. It's harder to break, you know, some of their some of their enzymes down. So the second tea we are tasting today is the Sakura Cherry Green. And so this is an organic green blend from Japan with dried cherries and cherry blossoms, hibiscus, rose petals, and then some natural cherry flavor. It's slightly tart. Some of that's from the hibiscus, but just has a beautiful red liquor, you know, as far as the color. And this is also one of our most popular chill teas because it really wakes your mouth up in the summertime. Obviously the hibiscus has lots of vitamin C, um, so it's pretty healthy for you. We're gonna talk about the invention of black tea. And so up to this point, it's all green. Obviously we mentioned the puar and the dark teas. Um, and they were the first form of trade. But during the Ming Dynasty, um, from about 1350 up until the mid-1600s, a major revolution in tea processing occurs in China. And what has happened is, of course, is that with the advent of shipping, and you have now all of these European countries that are sending their explorers and their navigators around the world, and of course they discover the Spice Islands, which is now Indonesia. They also land in China and start to trade with the Chinese. And tea is one of the first products that is traded between Chinese and Europeans. Um, initially, it's green tea. What they find is, is that the green tea spoils. It does not have enough to make it last for those long ocean voyages. And so what the Chinese figure out is they figure out a way to ferment the tea leaves. And another way to say ferment is to say oxidize. Um, they oxidize the tea leaves in air after first withering them, so it's drying them, uh, and then they bruise them by rolling it. This turns the leaves into a copper red color, and then further decomposition is halted by baking the leaf 
roasting the leaf, and that allows the tea to last for months or even years. And so this really facilitated the trade in tea because it allowed the tea to make it all the way to England and other European ports. Um, so it really allowed the creation of new markets um, for tea, and tea becomes really one of the primary agricultural commodities that Europeans desire. Even here in the North America, you know, this is back, went back to before the U.S. when we're still a colony, tea's being imported, albeit at pretty high prices, into Boston. You know, we know about the Boston Tea Party. Colonists threw it back in the harbor because of high excise taxes that were imposed by the East India Company. But tea becomes mainstream in Europe. So there's a huge market for it. Chinese exported large quantities to England um, for about 200 years. And as I said, it was the British East India Company that enjoyed a monopoly over it. In 1834, the English Parliament ends that monopoly. So this is like sort of the beginning of free trade. And Adam Smith was sort of the first free market economist. Uh, but he's, he's partially responsible for getting the monopoly from the British East India Company rescinded. So other companies can now do business there. The monopoly is finally ended, as I said, in 1834 when the London Tea Exchange opens. Towards the end of the 1700s and extending into the first half of the 1800s, the trade relations between China and England really go south and deteriorate due to the British introduction of opium into China. Created a lot of addicts, so we talk about the opioid crisis here in the U.S. now. There was a big opioid crisis in China when tea was really reaching major popularity. The British brought the opium from India as a leverage point so that they could use the opium in exchange to get back the tea. That was their thought process because, again, the Chinese had a monopoly on it and so they were charging high prices. So the British came up with the opium as another way to lower the price and to provide, again, an angle, a leverage angle for them. So the tea supply gradually begins to tighten as China tries to crack down on the opium trade. Um, eventually Japan closes its ports, so no more Westerners in China. The long shipping journeys, exorbitant prices, the conflict with China, all this prompts the British to say, we have to find another place to grow and get tea from. And obviously the logical choice is India, because it's a colony. Um, the East India Company ran the colony, um, so they enjoyed you know, all of the resources and all of sort of the economic might of the British Empire. It's really um, the first uh, opium war that commences in 1839, where the tea supply completely dries up because the Chinese closed the ports. And so about this time, a British explorer, Robert Bruce, discovers tea, wild tea, in northern India, in Assam. The Assamica variety is discovered growing wild. Over about 20 years, the British experiment with growing it, um, it's not as good as the Chinese tea. It doesn't have the same quality. It has a lot of earthiness, bold flavor, but it doesn't satisfy a lot of the tea uh, tasters and blenders in London. So eventually, what the East India Company, they hire the curator or the kind of the, the, the chief botanist for the Psychic Garden, the Chelsea Psychic Garden in London. This is where all the herbs and all the plants from around the world were taken by the British. They hire Robert Fortune to go to India to learn the secrets of the trade and to steal tea plants. 
they knew the Chinese weren't going to sell them to them. They knew the Chinese weren't going to give them to them. So he disguises himself and he hires a couple of local Chinese to travel with him to help him with the language. But he obviously learns a lot of Chinese while he's there. But they dress him up as a shogun from the interior. And they take him up river and he basically is able to use these what they call wardian boxes they're essentially ter terrariums mm -hmm. but these wardian boxes were what you could transport the tea over long distances because they were airtight and so he gets he collects seeds and he collects plants seedlings that he then smuggles out of china and ships to india also about this time, the British had been growing tea up in the mountains of Darjeeling. So Darjeeling is world famous for their teas, some of the most exotic black teas in the world. They call it the champagne of teas. Um, but because of the elevation and the fact that the soil types and the climate were much more similar to what you would experience in Western Yunnan and Sichuan, it grew better there. And so they, start, they started planting tea in Darjeeling in the 1850s. By the early 1860s, they now have enough of a market to start to meet the demand in England. And so that's really, you know, when black tea becomes super popular. It's not green tea anymore, it's black tea. And of course the English put their own stamp on it, the milk and sugar or the cream and the sugar. Um, the English tea parties, you know, become vogue. But, you know, since that time, you know, tea has changed a lot. But the major, you know, the major thing that the British did was they industrialized it. Eventually the British brought it to Kenya in 1910 and so by the 1950s Kenya was growing large quantities of black tea um, and so now Kenya is the third largest exporter. Um, India is number two and China is number one. Um, this Muscatel is a loose black that we get from our um, farm, Naxalbari, in Darjeeling from Sanya uh, Jabbar, you know, the only woman tea state owner that we are aware of. Currently, prices are incredibly low for tea, and so many estates are finding it very hard to survive. So many are going out of business. And um, it is not an easy time right now in the Indian tea industry. Thanks again to the Lake Missoula Tea Company for sharing the history of tea. Stop by the Lake Missoula Tea Company at 136 East Broadway for the full tea experience.